What's going on, you happily hairy hamsters? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined, as always, by the wondrous Will, also known as Hoodafunk. Good to be back, man, and hello, listeners. And what have we got in this week's episode, I hear you all asking? Well, we've got our catch-up, we've got some news, a bit more Diablo 4 nonsense, a potential Ubisoft sequel that is no longer going to be a thing, and some new additions to the Nintendo Switch Online subscription for those lucky subscribers before rounding out the episode with part two of our tale into Bioshock Infinite. But before we get into all that, let's hit them socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter, or X, I'm not really sure what to call it now, by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, slash X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. That's Twitch for now. Who knows what's actually going on there? And you can find me on Twitter slash X at Mr. Bames. And I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. So, Will, hit me up, man. What have you been playing this week? Uh, so this week, man, I went a little off script and played a game that I hadn't played in quite a long time. Uh, it's a game that we're both actually quite familiar with. Uh, we both have it in our catalogue of games to play. This week, I actually went ahead and completed Monster Hunter Rise. Ooh, very yeah, nice. Yeah, kind of out of left field. You know, by completed, I do have to kind of caveat that by saying that there is a hell of a lot of content, as always, uh, in Monster Hunter Rise following the completion of the main campaign. But I saw the credits roll, so you know what I mean? I completed it in a in a sense. I'm just trying desperately to remember what that last fight is, because I've also completed up to where I imagine you have. The final fight is Magna Malos. That's the sort of monster that brings a lot of the peril into the game in terms of the evil force that's attacking the village and turning the animals insane. Uh, so you have to fight him, finally. And he's quite a fun enemy to fight. He's got quite a large range of attacks. I went in completing the game with the Charge Blade and followers of the early podcast who have a pretty good memory uh, probably remember that that was my weapon of choice for the most part running through these games. And uh, I'm pleased to say that it didn't disappoint in this. No, I imagine it's probably better with the new combinations that the weapons have in the in Rise. It is, honestly. Some of the additional things that you can do, uh, including the fact that once you've got the weapon charged and you turn it into its kind of hammer axe form, at that point, the axe head actually starts to spin a little bit like a rotating blade. Nice. So, uh, you know, that adds additional hits per attack, which can add additional effects that you've got your blade charged with. Really, really useful. Although I did find myself missing the animal mounting mechanics, as well as the grappling hook mechanics that you could use in combination with that in Monster Hunter World. I had most recently played World before this, and it was a good few months ago that I actually got stuck into any world at all. It was on the PC. Was that for the challenge no i had played it subsequently but literally only just to go in for a hunt or two sometime back i probably figured it wasn't worthwhile talking about on the pod before but following that all these months later i finally decided to just dip into rise i didn't expect myself to complete the game by any measure i was just kind of jumping in and completing a few missions and then before i know it the mission to take on magnum Malos came up and was this on switch just to clarify or did it you was on the switch purchase it on pc no i haven't purchased it on pc i i'm not gonna get I'm not going to say burned because I it was absolutely me willingly participating in this, but <laughs> I bought so many different versions of Monster Hunter World. Yes, you did. <laughs> that I cannot bring myself to do the same for Rise. Fool me once, shame on me. If you fool me six times, they just make me a damn idiot. <laughs> uh, so that one has stuck on the Switch. And honestly, the, the game performs as well as it needs to with the occasional dip here and there, but it's not hugely noticeable. It runs fine, and it looks fine, and I'm sure you'll agree that you don't play Monster Hunter for the graphics typically. It's more of a nice bonus that World looks so good. Yeah, that's probably fair. I think that the gameplay is the core mechanic there, and in terms of trying to force upgrade your character going through, I think that it wouldn't hold up if the gameplay weren't as solid as it actually is. So overall, I think that the game still really holds up on the Switch. It's uh, it's definitely one that I'll probably pick up 
Sunbreak, uh, if I ever do pick up Sunbreak at least, I'll be buying it on the Switch. I can't see myself paying full price and going back in and getting both of them on the PC again. I'll probably save myself that tenner and just buy it on the Switch. Fair play. Can't say I blame you. I think it probably doesn't look that much better on the PC, to be perfectly honest with you, having played both. In the way that the games function and the fact that the hunts can take you as little as 15 to 20 minutes, I find that it functions really well as a handheld port as well as a one that you can plug into the dock. So I think I kind of, I'd like to retain that really and just kind of keep Monster Hunter Rise as my portable monster hunter that makes perfect sense i mean the only thing that puts me off rise and it's probably been fixed now but it was the online stuff when we played and it just crashed at the end of every mission that just put me off completely yeah we had a lot of difficulty there definitely yeah and i picked it up cheap with sunbreak on sale so i was like yeah may as well mm, mm. but no very random as you say but quite cool don't blame you Good little game. Yeah, the the fights in and itself is really satisfying. He gets charged up with this purple energy, and at that point, it's kind of their rage mode that you're quite familiar with. On him, he kind of goes into just pure aggression. All of his attacks seem to be extended. What I will say is I don't think he was harder than the final boss fight in Monster Hunter World either, though. He did feel easier, but perhaps a little cooler. He's definitely smaller than uh, the boss that you fight at the end of Monster Hunter World, but his attacks and things... Because of his size, I think, we're able to be a bit cooler. I could be getting this wrong, but if it's the same spot that I think you're at, it's not technically the final boss. I think there's like plenty more content after the fact and you fight a bunch more alpha animals and then, and then you do get that big one, I think. I've not done it, so I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. It's in a similar sort of way as like Zora Magdros isn't the final boss of World, right? But it's kind of put there as it and then you get more do the credits roll after zora magdaros no i was about to say that's the only difference i don't think the credits roll after zora magdaros yeah i mean i was fully anticipating and and also the game just flat out tells you that there's far more difficult hunts to go on but at the point of credits rolling i typically count that as the story is over sort of thing but as monster hunter needs to do it absolutely packs the majority of its content into the end game and that's the thing that takes you through and keeps you playing uh the campaign is definitely shorter in rise than in world 100 100 well. yeah so a really satisfying experience overall if not a little bit of an unexpected one yeah but sometimes they're the best yeah yeah hey it was satisfying and it felt like it came at just the right time in terms of uh, needing to come up with something to talk about on the podcast <laughs> Hey, and perhaps a little amuse-bouche for your next game. Yes. if you will. Perchance, perchance. Anyway, man, what about you? What have you been up to this week? So I, too, have played a bit of a random game that I had no intention of playing initially. It just came out of nowhere. Inspired by my run of Lords of the Fallen, which is a game I tried many years ago. I was going to say, if this was uh, on the back of that, giving games a second chance. Nice. It is a little bit. So... Cast your mind back to 2014, the same year that Lords of the Fallen came out. My good friends over at Spiders, who at the time, I must admit, I didn't know that Spiders did this game. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Yeah, so they released a game called Bound by Flame. That rings the vaguest of bells. <laughs> yeah. It's basically, it's a, a fairly obscure, at least I think it's fairly obscure, RPG, with the basic premise being that you are a mercenary called Vulcan, okay. who throughout the events of the tutorial mission gets um, possessed by a demon spirit of sorts sure thing okay okay sounding familiar and he gives you pyromancy powers which is really cool nice and you basically work your way through the game uh, standard sort of rpg fare but you make choices throughout that can sort of affect how possessed you get okay so you can fully lean into demon and it literally physically changes your um, appearance and things like that so you get horns and you get some bonuses and some debuffs as a result as well or you can stay human and not like be influenced by it at all uh, which is the route i took because the achievement was rarer that's basically the reason yeah <laughs> and uh i made the both terrible and also incredibly satisfying decision to play this um in buffalo difficulty which is the equivalent of hard so not the hardest setting because there's an extreme setting called captain right okay but hard and and turns out this is quite a hard game anyway that's some weird naming conventions right there so we went buffalo then captain so what's easy so it's recruit recruit hawk okay hawk Yep. Buffalo. Hawk, Buffalo. Captain. Captain. And is there like a, a, a souped up mode at the end? No, so Captain is the extreme mode. Fine, fine. Okay, okay. And it follows the ranks of the mercenary crew that you're with. So Recruit right. obviously being the lowest, Hawk then being the next, Buffalo being the next, and then Captain being Top Dog. How did Buffalo end up? Uh, Buffalo's like a, a herd animal that's preyed on, right? Like, yeah. How did Buffalo beat a... I mean, in a one-on-one ground fight, obviously a buffalo is going to kind of stomp a hawk, but like, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like an odd ranking system there. Hey, 
I don't make the rules, man. Yeah, mine isn't rules. a question anyway. Let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> but yeah, so and I just got really into that, and uh, it's really hard. But more so because in the harder difficulties, the enemies just have so many hit points, right? So many, and they do so much damage that you you have to focus for your entire playthrough. And that's why I say it's sort of both awful and also is really satisfying. Because when I finished it, because I did complete it, it was just a great feeling of hell yeah! I actually feel like I've really achieved something there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this was a game I tried back on xbox so a while ago now and i just could never get into it really for whatever reason i don't know why and uh, as i say inspired by lords of the fall and i got back into it and yeah finished it in three days let's talk a little bit about the gameplay man what uh kind of style is it there is it hack and slashy or is it uh you mentioned it was an rpg but how yeah. does the moment to moment gameplay sound it is somewhere in between a souls game and a normal hack and slash rpg so you don't have stamina so right. you can swing and dodge ad nauseum but the dodge isn't particularly effective and you can only use it in one of your two fighting stances which are warrior and ranger right aka yeah. heavy weapons or daggers and i spec'd for warrior which according to the internet is uh, completely unusable and uh, is basically the wrong choice but uh hate to say it internet you're incorrect on that just learn how to fucking parry and in terms of gameplay it's sort of a mixture of fetch quests sort of your general rpg fare go collect things to make a cure for something or other you can try out the cure and it might give you some stats or something like that okay and the basic premise of the story is is that uh, the undead are trying to take over the world led by sort of ice lords and uh, the humans are basically fucked but then you get possessed and you're now a tool that can defeat the great evil sounds a little uh, kind of yeah cliche but uh, you know uh, incredible are most video games honestly. but they all are right yeah without a massive budget and like proper writers and things like that yeah yeah and uh you know the voice acting is okay it's not the best for the reasons you've just outlined there but it's a fun little game uh just one last question then before we move on are you getting the sense that the outcome of the game will be dictated by how beast-like you become and how far you lean into that uh, kind of corruption meter that you were talking about earlier? Uh, no getting the sense, I know. Oh, okay, right. So there's a neutral ending, a good ending, and a bad ending. Okay, okay, cool. And uh, because I'm an achievement whore, I did the neutral and the good ending. <laughs> oh, right, I was going to ask. Yeah, you completed this twice then, cool. Well, I completed it once, but I saved before the final decision. Right. Spider's Game staple, shout-outs to Greedfall, did the same thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> And basically for the neutral ending, you say that you're not going to do anything. You're going to control the power, stay on the world and defeat all enemies yourself. And the achievement's called like the Lord amongst men. And you're right, basically the most right. powerful being on the earth. And it just cuts to black there. You get nothing. In the good ending, you sacrifice yourself to heal the world. Oh, okay. Okay. And then you get a nice little like beautiful ending similar to a lot of games where the choices you make give you like a storybook entries almost about what mm. happens at the end so kind of like the witcher in that regard yeah Not that you've completed the witcher but i know what you mean but that sort of thing and uh, one of your companions that you get throughout the game who's uh, an eternal spirit who inhabits many bodies over six thousand years uh, and is quite a joker called mathras shout out he just uh, tells the story and it's quite nice really satisfying ending glad i did that one last <laughs> nice nice no it sounds like a satisfying game to play and uh would you consider it if you were going to go back play through the game three times to get the endings is it worth that or are you quite thankful that the uh that the ending gives you the opportunity to save right before no so i will do another run at some point i'm sure uh, i do not think i'm going to play it on extreme yeah I'm, i yeah. might but i probably won't i will probably do a female character like um, have the demon uh, possess me just to get some missing achievements and things like that but probably not for a while because of the, how much you need to concentrate it did uh take you out of me quite a bit yeah if you're saying the enemies are already tanky on hard mode then it doesn't surprise me that uh, you might tap out there because that's one of the more boring ways to make your game harder is to increase the enemy health too high and uh yeah this sounds like i would stick to a, a more reasonable difficulty as well there so the way i'd put it that makes the most sense to me at least is that witcher 3 does the same thing when you go from normal to death march so normal to extreme the only difference is the enemy do more damage and they have more health there's no ai difference there's no different move sets right but with the witcher 3 it works better because the rest of the game is so deep and involved with bound by flame you need to really love the game to want to do that 
and I had a great time. But had I known how Buffalo was going to be before I played it, I probably wouldn't have done Buffalo, if that makes sense. And I was then going to follow that on by starting another Spiders game because I was quite in the Spiders mood after that. So I I had Mars Warlogs installed and ready. So, you know, maybe look out for that in a few weeks or whatever. But I did a thing, Will. What did you do? I did a thing. There's more? (laughs) There is more. I did a thing. So... A game came out this week at the time of recording on the 25th of July that I was going to wait for. I wasn't going to buy on day one, but I did in the end. Uh, I picked up Remnant 2. Oh, no way. Okay, okay, cool, man. I've been seeing a lot of good stuff about this, and I was particularly interested to see it after some of the release or early early test release footage. So uh, how are you finding it, man? It's looked awesome. So I haven't played much of it, and of the six or so hours that i've played four of those with me starting again a bunch (laughs) right okay but so far so good i'll start off with the two negatives one sort of jokey negative and one actually quite serious negative for me the jokey negative is they haven't put a block in so the combat functions exactly the same way right okay yeah can't say i'm too surprised we didn't see anything to suggest that it was going to function differently it was more of a hope exactly but that's fine that's not the end of the world it's a remnant game that's fine but the biggest disappointment for me so far, and admittedly I haven't done a lot, is that the character creator still sucks. Oh, that's a shame. You still only have eight heads to pick from, two from each race, uh, and and it's just very limited. And it was a real disappointment when I opened. And that's why I had to start again so many times, because I didn't like how my character looked. Right, right. Even though there's few options. But finally got there, got into it, stuck it on veteran. Oh, very good. You were going in confident. Well, hey, I mean, if the combat feels essentially the same, then go in strong, you know? And that's what I did on Remnant 1 as well. You start on veteran, so you learn how to play. And as I've already played it, I figured I would. But can't really report too much at this stage. Uh, There's a few familiar characters for people that have played Remnant 1. Uh, Basically exactly the same vendors. Oh, very good. Um, And uh, you do actually start the game with uh, Andrew Ford in your village. If you remember Founder Ford, the old man we rescued right Right, the the yeah, game. yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, I won't okay. say any more than that because new game, story spoilers, all that good stuff, but yeah. he is there and present at the start of the game. So familiar faces, the root is still kicking about, but there's other shit going on. I, we, we clocked there was kind of like Matrix looking cyborgs and I've since seen some boss footage that absolutely looks very robot mechanical. The one thing I will say that's different from Remnant 1 is that in Remnant 1, all Although everything was still procedurally generated like it is in this one, when you started off in the first world, you were in the first world. You start in that sort of almost like derelict town before moving on to sort of the sandy or more deserty like area. Yeah. Before progressing to the swamp, before progressing yeah. to wherever, right? In this, I've done two runs where I've sort of got to the point where you enter the first world you're in. The first world you start in is random in this one. So presumably there's a choice of four worlds or whatever, but you can get flung into it. The way the story works, you can get flung into any of them to begin with. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. It's really interesting. Yeah. So, Mm. So yeah, that's really all I can say about it at this stage. I intend to play a lot more of it over the coming few weeks. I'm based on the fact that you haven't actually mentioned anything in terms of issues with performance or frame rate or glitches or anything like that it's solid as a rock is it so far so good looks beautiful there's actually cutscenes that are voice acted now which i don't recall there being too many of if any at all in the first one or at least they weren't memorable if they did happen exactly so very cool stuff so far the world's beautiful um funnily enough that it does share some assets from the first world which you'd expect um in terms of like where ward 13 is situated right because it's still ward 13 but you've probably seen from the footage that it's moved outside rather than being inside oh no i hadn't seen that scattered clips is only thing i've seen the graphics look nice yeah it looks wonderful and what i can say so far with my limited playtime is if you enjoyed remnant one you will love remnant two are the classes the same or have they introduced any new or different classes oh you're not gonna get into that oh no oh no i can get into it but it's just it's very different so um you don't really start off as a class you just you are who you are you get toward 13 and then some story stuff happens that i won't get into but you then meet a, a fella called wallace or wally right and he gives you a choice between four archetypes five if you pre-ordered which i didn't and you can start off one's a medic which you will really appreciate as a yeah medic fan, as a and, medic I, fan. <laughs> yeah. and i nearly picked that 
Um, there's a tanky one, which I think is called the Commander, but I can't remember exactly what it's called. And there's one called the Handler, which has a doggo companion, which is the one that I picked. I was very interested by the Handler. Any class with a doggo companion is the one. I, we actually had a dog companion in uh, in the first game, did we not? Not permanent, though. You had to summon it in. Yeah, it was a summoning dog. This yeah, is per- no. permanent dog. Yeah, yeah. Very good sh- And then the fourth one, I think, is the Gunslinger. No, the Gunslinger is the one you can un- that you can get the access to i can't remember what the fourth one is off the top of my head so apologies for that but each of these archetypes has their own special power that comes with it so with the doggo one uh, if i die my dog can revive me once every three minutes or two minutes or something. oh okay super useful for a single player playthrough using one of my uh, dragon relic things that he oh, your but, estus things so yeah um and the commander for example he can when he gets killed he comes back to life once uh the medics one is something like if you heal a certain amount of health then uh, your relics recharge so by healing oh, right, others okay. your healing comes back that's useful uh, yeah. and things like that and my understanding is is you can change archetypes throughout the game if you purchase certain items or find certain items and then craft those into the archetype base so it's quite different but it still has the same sort of traits that you then find the books of knowledge for to get trait points and you can increase those as well. So there's a lot more mechanics to play with. You can now wear four rings instead of just two. Things like oh, that. There's amulets wow. now. Big changes. <laughs> no, man, more buffs. That's, that yeah, oh, yeah. Quite it's, a big it's always a good thing. It's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so far so good. Look forward to having more to talk about on that. And uh, hopefully I can get someone else hyped to buy it and play it with me uh, yeah I, honestly uh, i've got to fully admit that in the time that we've had this conversation i did just have a quick snoop at the steam page there and uh had a little look very reasonably priced as well i think it's only like 40 quid yeah absolutely which is really nice to see as well that you know this is a, a game made by a smaller studio and they're keeping the price point low and i think that, that will go a long way in terms of attracting new players they've definitely gone on a bit more of a marketing hype with this one i've noticed a lot of videos popping up all over the internet so I hope that this really pays off for them. I do too, and the early signs are that it will. I think it's uh, going down very well with the fan base, so look forward to talking about it more in the coming weeks. But with that, we come to the end of the catch-up for this week, so why don't we now discuss some news? So in our first news story this week, and it's an unfortunate one to kick off the news here, but more Diablo 4 nonsense. Oh jeez. So in a damning report from our friends at PC Gamer, shout out, the Season 1 Battle Pass is so poorly thought out that it doesn't even give you enough premium currency, which is called Platinum, to purchase a single item. That's pretty poor. That's really poor, isn't it? I mean, at least in the Call of Duty Battle Pass, you can get at least one pack. You make the choice between buying one premium pack or the next Battle Pass. Exactly, and the the worst thing is, as I'm about to say here, is that it's basically... (laughs) You do all that grinding, right? And all you get is a gimmicky 666 platinum because, you know, the yeah, of devil, course, right? The mark, yeah, the number of the beast, of course. Which, uh, according to this report, is not even enough to buy a single item, as I say. And it further states that another of the unlockable currencies, which is called Smoldering Ashes, which will unlock seasonal bonuses like XP buffs and things of that nature, is level locked, meaning that you can progress the battle pass all you want, but if your character isn't at the required level, then no ashes for you. I wonder if you get those ashes once you've reached that level. Presumably you would. Just, yeah, they must be, surely. Which So this one's not quite as egregious, but it could still frustrate people, particularly if they're still having issues getting into the game and things like that, as we reported on last week. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that it unlocks seasonal XP buffs, it's kind of like, yeah, you want to use those to get to the higher levels. You don't want to have to get to a high level to use them, yeah. Exactly, so it's quite a bizarre one. So uh, it's the latest in a cascade of bullshit that appears to be emanating from this title, and uh, the question for me, at least, is... Is it an oversight, or is it a dirty money-grabbing tactic, with neither option showing Blizzard in a good light, unfortunately? I have a feeling that a lot of lack of oversight of the game uh, is causing some of these issues. I think the issues that I've read about, interestingly, are less to do with the battle pass and more to do with the balancing changes and changes to item rarity drops and things like that, which they've made a lot harder to do, and they've effectively made player characters weaker as well. So I understand that I think that that is absolutely an issue there with uh, kind of an oversight on their part or not properly thinking about it, they've since come out to say that they accept and agree that it's not fun, and they definitely won't be doing this again. 
I just hope that they take the same line in terms of the criticisms that this article presents in terms of the lack of platinum. I think that you really, really should be able to buy at least one premium item with the entirety of the battle pass. The fact that it only gives you 666, it's, it's almost meaningless at that point. Just include aesthetics at that point if you can't get any money bonuses to get them. And that's why I ask, is it just a dirty money grabbing tactic? Because the cynic in me says, well, they're only giving you that much, so you have to buy it. That is absolutely... Uh, where I agree with you in terms of this being a money-grabbing tactic, because I'm sure that the premium currency items are probably like 1,000 or 1,200, 666 being a very convenient number in terms of the amount of coins that you would need to purchase to just make sure you get one of the items that you want. Uh, yeah, I do feel like this is slightly underhanded as well. Yeah. Now, I should caveat this by saying I personally haven't seen it, played it, so I can't speak to it. I don't think you need to uh, have done any of those things to make a call on uh, this poor performance. No, exactly. And it just, uh, given that it follows us reporting last week that the new season wasn't going down too well in terms of performance issues, crashes on the character creator and things of that nature, not particularly great from come slam our servers and the game being, what, a month and a bit old. It's not a good look. Do better, Diablo. Do better. So in our second news story this week... The potential sequel to Ubisoft's Immortals Phoenix Rising has been cancelled so that Ubisoft can focus on its bigger IPs. So for those that may not know, Immortals Phoenix Rising is a semi-mythological hack-and-slash-style adventure that was initially released back in December 2020. So this report comes courtesy of VGC, with workers from Ubisoft Quebec reportedly stating that the company higher-ups want to focus on already existing IPs with proven track records, such as Assassin's Creed. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what they've been doing for a long, yeah. long time. <laughs> now, it's worth noting that Ubisoft themselves have declined to comment, stating that they do not comment on rumours and speculation. Um, but whether true or not, this would make a lot of sense, given our previous discussions around Ubisoft and their finances. But it's a shame that they do not seem to have faith in themselves to nail a new IP, and probably not brilliant for the uh the guys that made immortals phoenix rising to hear oh yeah we, we want to fuck you off for bigger ips not very motivational is it no not particularly i just i guess i think it's been a long time since ubisoft has been that company yeah. um that was able to actually pull off new ips and, and things like that they are they do absolutely seem to just be a company that rests on their laurels now and churns out games looking at some of the gameplay for immortals phoenix rising though i'm not entirely surprised that it's got cancelled it does look very unimpressive uh, to be coming out in this day and age as well, I, I, I can appreciate why they might have like scooted this one off in light of uh, more manpower for other titles. It's an interesting one because as you've sort of intimated there, I don't think Immortals Phoenix Rising did as well as Ubisoft would have liked. But that being said, I mean, I, I know a couple of people that have played it and they've only had good things to say and the sales were at least decent. So... You would have thought that Ubisoft might have said, oh, give a second one a go. Is what it is. But the final thing that's worth noting that's also really quite interesting and possibly makes this story a non-story is that uh, a sequel was never actually confirmed as being in the works. You know, there was no showcase reveal or anything like that. It was widely anticipated there would be one. And the fact that this story is allegedly coming out of Ubisoft Quebec suggests that there was one in the works. It just hadn't been announced yet. Right. But now, no more. They want to focus on Assassin's Creed Mirage and things like that. Yeah, yeah, of and, course and, they do. And Watch Dogs. <laughs> and, uh... Please give us a Splinter Cell, Ubisoft. Please. I just want a Splinter Cell. Yeah, for all that talk of, like, established IPs. <laughs> yeah, I know. That one's just begging. It would be the right time to do it as well with the amount of franchises that are going back to that sort of era of gaming. I think there's absolutely room for a real good back to basic splinter cell if you get my meaning sort of thing a bit like uh, the original one with all the sort of tone of that game but with obviously modernized controls and graphics and things like that all i would say is do you trust today's ubisoft to do that well uh no i don't no i definitely don't but again it's, it's yet to be proven how they would handle something like that because to my knowledge the only similar sorts of things they've done in the past have been hd remasters and outside of you know later titles in uh, the Splinter Cell series, which you could argue, although that they are trying to capture the essence of the original games, I'm sure that at a certain point agreement was made to take it in different, more action-based directions. I would like to see them try, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'd like to see them try. <laughs> and I agree with that, but by the sounds of it, not for now at least. Hey, who knows? Maybe uh, Immortals Phoenix Rising 2 bit the dust specifically for the upcoming Splinter Cell title. Uh, we can hope. <laughs> we can only dream. <laughs> 
And with our final news story this week, something a little bit more positive after what you could call two negative news stories there. Nintendo have added two classic Zelda games to the Switch Online library. So in a lovely end of July gift to those online subscribers, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons have been added to the online library. So these are two Game Boy Color classics that were originally developed by a subsidiary of Capcom called Flagship and were originally released in 2001. Okay. I personally didn't play either of them, but people I know that have played them have, again, only had good things to say. And I know that many fans have been clamoring for these games to be remade out of Link's Awakening that happened back in 2019. So I'm sure it would be a welcome addition to the library. Yeah, absolutely. More Zelda games on the library, always good news. I myself never had a Game Boy Color, uh, so I never played either of these either. But I'm sure it's good news for fans of the franchise. Yeah, and, uh, you know, allegedly, uh, I think I hope I'm getting this the right way around, Oracle of Ages is meant to be one of the tougher Zelda games, uh, which is why I think it's got a sort of cult classic status, with Oracle right. of Seasons, I believe, being quite a bit easier. Great news for fans of those games, I'm sure, and it's nice to see Nintendo sort of keeping that library stocked up on games, because I know we've said it to each other before i'm pretty sure we've probably said it on the pod before but the nintendo switch online subscription at what 20 something pound a year it's uh, 18.99 i believe or at least it was the last time i paid for it yeah it's it's a bargain it is and considering yeah, all the nes and snes value. games you get on there game boy color library sounds like it's getting bigger so just give us the original pokemon games nintendo like you know that's next in line I want to see Gen 1, Gen 2, and Gen 3 at least. Come on. Yeah, I think that they're kind of holding off for that for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, they, you know, if they haven't released it now, why would they have any intent on releasing it in the near future either? Now you could say the same about two Zelda games from 2001, <laughs> the Game Boy Color, mate. But uh, you're not wrong. You're not stranger wrong. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> Uh, and on that lovely note, we come to the end of the news this week, so why don't we sidle on over to Completionist Corner? Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. So we pick up our tale waking up after a near-death experience, having been saved from drowning by Elizabeth after her avian protector had chased us down following our escape from Monument Tower in last week's episode. Clearly still feeling the effects, Booker is not as enthusiastic as Elizabeth, who is just elated to be out of captivity. Elizabeth gets excited by the sound of music in the distance and, sensing an opportunity for 40 winks, Booker tells her to go check it out whilst he gets himself together. She duly obliges, and Booker decides to rest his eyes for a little longer. Some time passes before Booker finally stirs. Still feeling a little worse for wear, he wanders across the beach a little bit before getting his bearings and setting off to look for Elizabeth. Remembering her excitement earlier, he follows the sound of music, which leads him to a boardwalk on the beach. There is a man playing a piano whilst locals frolic and dance on the boardwalk and along the beach, and amongst this rabble is Elizabeth, who is clearly living her best life. Booker gets her attention, and she, rather excitedly, asks Booker to dance with her. Being the rugged old mercenary type that he is, Booker refuses and insists that they be on their way. Elizabeth reluctantly agrees, and off they go with the ultimate goal of heading to the aerodrome to commandeer Comstock's First Lady airship. As the pair make their way towards the gondola that will take them to the aerodrome, they are once again stopped by Lutess and Lotess, our guides from last week's episode, with them this time asking Elizabeth to choose between two badges. Elizabeth cannot decide as she likes them both, so shoves them in Booker's face to get his opinion. The choice is between a bird or a cage. Very fitting for Elizabeth. So, Will, just very quickly, which one did you choose? Just have interest. Uh, I went for the bird. As did I. Fitting, isn't it, right? She's clearly the bird in the birdcage. Symbolic. Yeah, and, you know, birds are just great. So, fair play. <laughs> but with the decision made and the path now clear, Booker and Elizabeth head off the boardwalks and into an amusement centre via the employee entrance. It is here where we meet the interracial couple from the start of the game, as mentioned last week, and they give us a piece of gear assuming the choice was made to throw the number 77 baseball at Fink rather than at them, which uh, we both did, thankfully. And also in this section through the amusement centre, you get a lot of idea how they're kind of uh, brainwashing the children in this sense. They've got sort of Punch and Judy style amusement machines that you can see, and a lot of them are around pretty... Uh, controversial messages to your children. They they kind of give example of one kid who basically just kicks his feet around and does nothing, while the other kid kind of makes sure that his rifle's clean after firing it and stuff like that. So yeah, some kind of very of the time 
instructional videos with some very questionable moral guidance there. Uh, not as bad as the kids' cigarettes. Oh, yes, you can cross the corner and find a couple of kids smoking up down. Never mind that, you get uh, one of those uh, thingies that you look into is like an advert for it. Oh, really? Okay, I, I must have missed that one. It's called something like... Uh, minor something <laughs> cigarettes for children i assume yeah literally they're advertised as being cigarettes designed for children yeah of course yeah lovely <laughs> having gone through the amusement center our heroes make it to the ticket office where they hope to book passage to soldiers field where the gondola that will take them to the aerodrome is located as they approach the ticket booth and ask for tickets we can't help but notice that the ticket man is acting mighty suspicious seemingly talking to someone over the phone, or whatever the 1912 Columbia version of a phone is, about how they are here. At this point, Booker is given a choice. Either demand the tickets, or draw your weapon. I wonder what Booker will do. Anyway, I started blasting. Bah, bah. At this point, all of the seemingly innocent NPCs in the area now draw their weapons, and a fight ensues. But they are no match for Booker, and his infinite supply of ammo, thank you Elizabeth. Yeah, very f***ing handy that. Absolutely. <laughs> and with that crisis averted, our heroes head through the ticket office and head on to Soldier's Field. But they didn't scan their oyster cards. Naughty people. They didn't. They didn't tap off either. Nah, bad, bad. To be fair, they, they did kill anyone that had a hope of asking them for their ticket in that scene. And at this point, Elizabeth gets pretty upset with you because up until then, you haven't kind of viciously murdered anyone in front of her. So when you do get to that, she does immediately run off and it takes quite a bit of convincing to kind of come back on side after this murderous act that he's just committed. I don't remember there being that much convincing. <laughs> oh, she's, yeah, she, she has a proper mood. You have to like kind of chase her and Oh, I don't remember that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. She was just running out with me and she was berating me and I was like, ah, sometimes you've got to do it. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's, that's how I remember it anyway. I mean, it, yeah, it, it does get moved on pretty quick, but she's definitely not happy about it. No, no, she definitely she definitely does make a point of it, but then is perfectly fine for the rest of the game. So it's quite funny. After you kind of convince her and say something like, One thing I've learned. If you don't draw first, you don't get to draw at all. That's the line that makes that kind of thing. Like, we were going to die if we didn't do that. If you don't pull the trigger first, you don't pull it at all. And then, and that's the that's the line that gets her. <laughs> so Soldier's Field is relatively peaceful after the slaughter fest that was the amusement centre, at least for now it is, with only a small welcome party to deal with on arrival. Our heroes quickly locate the gondola that will lead them to the First Lady Aerodrome and head over to the switch that will summon said gondola. However, nothing is ever straightforward in the video game universe, and upon pressing the switch, our whole host of enemies are alerted and begin attacking. And as if that wasn't enough, the generator powering the gondola also shorts and loses power, meaning no aerodrome for us. At least not yet. If only we had some form of electricity power like we had in previous games. Q fetch quest for the shock jockey vigor. Luckily for us, there is a supply of shock jockey tonics at a local landmark, the Hall of Heroes. Booker and Elizabeth defeat the horde of enemies in Soldier's Field before using the sky rails to make their way towards the Hall of Heroes. Before entering the Hall of Heroes itself, there is a replica of a 1900s America to pass through with a few snipers and assorted enemies to get through. And it's here where we find the first example of a secret code used by the Vox Populi, who are a rebel group in Colombia made up mainly of the various minorities that Comstock's cronies despise so much. This group is led by an outlaw named Daisy Fitzroy, who used to be the chambermaid for Lady Comstock before being cast out after being accused of her murder. These codes need a codebook to decipher them and often lead to some tasty loot. We probably won't cover these in great detail as the loot typically isn't game changing, but the rebel group leaving coded stashes around for other members was a nice detail in building the lore of the world. We also find our next vigor in this area, a familiar one if you played all of the fair games at the start of the game, Bucking Bronco. In short, this figure raises an enemy into the air, rendering them helpless, which is very useful for getting people out of cover. And with this area thoroughly searched and looted, we can now enter the Hall of Heroes itself. Inside the Hall of Heroes, we are greeted by a mad-sounding man over a PA system. This man seems to know Booker, and before long, the reasons become clear. This man is none other than Cornelius Slate, who it turns out was a soldier alongside Booker fighting against the Chinese in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. He has taken all of the shock jockey for himself and is making a final stand in the Hall of Heroes, seeking a soldier's death for him and his men. He challenges Booker to face him in two wings of the museum which are dedicated to famous battles, Peking and Wounded Knee. 
We can tackle these in any order we wish, with each consisting of waves of Slate's men attacking us amongst cardboard scenes depicting the aforementioned conflict, with typically Colombian racially sensitive art styles, of course. Insensitive art styles. <laughs> I hope the sarcasm came through there. <laughs> the depictions of Chinese people are not kind. <laughs> So each of the two wings has a mini-boss of sorts, uh, with one having a fireman, like we fought at the start of the game, and one having one of them coffiny crowboys that we also fought, sort of relatively early doors in the game. But otherwise, neither fight is particularly noteworthy, other than the surroundings. Because at this point, um, Booker actually talks to Elizabeth a bit more about his past and his lore, because obviously they're talking about being soldiers here. I did quite enjoy this section, because it gave you an interesting different backdrop, although as much as shooting your way through the streets of Colombia is both kind of horrifying and gorgeous, it was kind of cool to actually like fight in a slightly different setting, even though you did know in the back of your head that everything was made of cardboard. It, you know, it gave, you, gave you a different view for once. It felt a little bit like a funhouse, and I think that was probably how it was intended. Extremely racist funhouse slash oh, museum. <laughs> yeah. Slate is constantly berating and goading Booker as we make our way through these fights. Eventually, we make our way to the First Lady's memorial en route to the gift shop, where all the lovely shock jockey will surely be waiting for us. We make our way into a courtyard where we're introduced to a very useful mechanic in the game. By this point, we've already seen that Elizabeth can open tears to other worlds on occasion, and in this courtyard, she shows us that she can use tears to bring many useful goodies into our world including, but not limited to, skyhooks, crates of medical supplies or weapons, allied units including sentry guns and patriot robots, and emergency cover. We make our way through the gift shop and find the crates of Shock Jockey, however there is nothing left as it has all been taken. That damn slate! He goes us some more as we make our way back out into the courtyard for arguably the biggest fight of the game so far. And this is quite an interesting one, because this courtyard is quite a wide area, a couple of big staircases on it, some sort of freestanding bits of concrete almost as cover, but there's also a top balcony section which Slate's running on, and there's also a few snipery enemies up there. And what makes this fight particularly interesting is that A, there's loads of soldiers, B, we get... I mean, we're technically introduced to these enemies a bit earlier in the game, but we get a couple of these Patriot robots coming to attack us here, and they're basically giant robotic George Washingtons with crank guns, which uh, is quite a useful little gun, actually. Incredibly slow to wind up, but packs a punch. 100%. Ah, it's really nice that they actually thought to drop those crank guns so you can actually use them, as opposed to just being a weapon that is strictly for that type of enemy. Exactly. Very nice touch. And a relatively tough enemy. You can take it out from the front, but it takes quite a while. The best tactic is to shoot it in the back where its gears are exposed. Yeah, 100%. Either shooting it in the back, or what I found was really useful was actually just possessing those ones and letting most of the other guys just do damage to them. They can do a hell of a lot of damage to the other guys that they're fighting with their own crank gun, and it kind of leaves you to take on the ones that are coming to you. It splits up the attention a little bit. Yeah, that's not a bad shout. I actually, uh, this is where I really used the perk that I unlocked for Murder of Crows to great effect, where whereby if you kill someone under the effect of Murder of Crows, their body becomes a trap. Nice, yeah. So you kill one, like at the bottom of the stairs, for example, they all just come flooding through and they all just get attacked by crows and it's just great. And uh, obviously as well, using the tears that we mentioned earlier, you can summon through a sentry gun and some really, really key pieces of cover. But the thing that I thought made this fight particularly exciting and... You know, it's not the hardest game, as we've already mentioned, but there was a little bit of peril with this, is that from the top balcony level, Slate is just chucking down shock jockey traps, and they're just being plastered everywhere. Like, even including on, like, the ceiling and stuff, because they haven't made it down. The whole battlefield becomes blue. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It definitely makes the game a lot harder. You've got a lot more restricted movement, or at least if you do decide to walk through it, you're going to have to take some damage. Thankfully, it's possible to shoot these little mines that he leaves laying around, but they're really quite effective at restricting your movement. Yeah, and if he chucks one behind you while you're backtracking, for example, you could get shafted. So yeah, got to watch out, but made it through. Not too bad. So after an epic battle, the now injured Slate tries to escape, but he cannot outrun his fate. We find him wounded and hunched up against a wall, with a bottle of shock jockey next to him. At this point, we are given the choice to either spare or kill him. Very briefly, Will, did you spare or kill Slate? I was a good boy this playthrough, I spared Slate. I did too. There we go, look at us go. But whatever choice is made, we now have what we came for and can head back to Soldier's Field so that we can get to the aerodrome and make our escape. Upon arriving back at the gondola summon switch, we use our new vigor to re-energize the generator and can now summon the gondola. However, whilst the gondola is on its way, our heroes are attacked by more of Comstock's men. 
Thankfully, this is a large area with plenty of cover and sky rails to travel around on, so we were able to repel the ambush and make our way to the aerodrome to board the First Lady airship with relative ease. And at this point in the game, you should start to be getting pretty familiar with how the combat works on and off of the sky rails, being able to jump off, hit enemies on your landing, as well as jump away, evading their attacks, using that in combination with Elizabeth's summoning powers. The way that the combat works in this game is very fluid and fairly unique in the sense that you can summon up all of these objects as you go. In a first person shooter I don't necessarily think that's been done before and I think that it works really well and is very fluid. Although worth noting you can only summon one object at a time. Opening one tail will close the other one. Otherwise it would be ridiculously OP. Absolutely yeah, good way of balancing it I think. Aboard the airship, Elizabeth is excited at the prospect of finally seeing Paris in the flesh as Booker inputs some coordinates into the navigation system. However, Elizabeth was quick to point out that the coordinates inputted were those of New York rather than Paris and was less than pleased with Booker for his deception. So displeased, in fact, that when Booker tries to comfort her, he gets a wrench straight to the cranium, knocking him unconscious. Booker is woken up a while later by none other than Daisy Fitzroy, leader of the Vox Populi, who has taken the airship for herself. And she offers Booker a deal, Get the Vox a shitload of guns and they will give him back his airship. Left with very little option, Booker agrees to this deal and is dropped off at the Finkton docks with two new missions. Find the gunsmith, a man by the name of Chen Lin, and find Elizabeth. How else would his debt be wiped out after all? Booker works his way through the docks and it does not take him long to catch up with Elizabeth, although she continues to evade him as she's still pretty livid with his deception. Thankfully, there are not too many enemies in the initial area of the docks, and unless you enter employee-only areas or steal things, like I did, in which case a whole army will attack you. Eventually, Booker catches up to Elizabeth, only to see her get captured and taken to an area known as Beggar's Wharf. Booker heads to Beggar's Wharf and takes out a load more enemies before finally reaching the cell where Elizabeth is being held. Booker frees her, and instead of the thanks that he might have been expecting, she starts running away again. Booker gives chase, avoiding various obstacles that Elizabeth brings through a multitude of tears before eventually falling off Columbia, now clinging on for dear life. Just as it looks like he is about to slip and bring the game to a very unsatisfactory conclusion, a hand reaches out and rescues her. It is none other than Elizabeth. She is quick to point out that she still doesn't trust Booker, but does concede that he is likely her best chance of escaping Columbia. I'm slipping! Do not attempt to follow me, Mr. Tang. Elizabeth, I've made an arrangement to get our airship back. You can get us out of here. Yes, I just need to supply enough weapons to arm an entire uprising. And where will we get these weapons? From one of our many friends and allies? A gunsmith in Finkton should be a walk in the park. What do you say, partners? A truce is made? And once again, our heroes travel in tandem, making their way to Chen Ling's gun shop in the Plaza of Zeal. And uh, it's worth mentioning at this point that uh, on our way across the Plaza of Zeal, we're actually ambushed by a few more of Comstock's men, and we actually meet um, another unique troop, who eagle-eyed players of the game can actually meet at the fair right at the start of the game, being shown That's off on true. a stage. Being terrorised by the camera flashes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we meet the Handyman, which is basically a big old robotic enemy with a human-like head and a big sort of shiny glowing heart right in the front which is naturally its weak spot and the interesting thing about these enemies is they can follow you on skylines which isn't too big a deal because a lot of the human enemies can too but when they do so they can actually electrify the skylines meaning that you take damage until you fall off or jump off the skyline which i thought was quite a neat little addition yeah it's a good way of restricting you from using the skylines which by now players would have figured out are a really good means of escaping and doing some really cool attacks as will mentioned earlier but uh yeah lots of health these guys have they're kind of the equivalent of the big daddy from bioshock one in a way Although that they don't have any sort of additional little sister to follow around, they don't have as much of a developed storyline as the Big Daddies. But I think that they're in there to kind of replicate that type of enemy in the game. Something that is going to take a whole lot of bullets and he's going to be chasing you around the level, smacking you about, unless you're able to get away. Yeah, but nowhere near as intimidating for me as the Big Daddies, though. Because it's funny, you say that and instantly I'm like, yeah, of course it is. But I didn't make that connection when I played. Just uh, didn't scare me. It's just a bald guy, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, he kind of looks a little bit like uh, that dude from the Goonies. Reminded me of Agent 47. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bald guy. Yeah. <laughs> but he's got kind of like a giant robotic arm. Uh, one of his arms as well is face. Of I should say facially. I should say facially. Yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of all morphed, isn't he? So he kind of walks with a bit of like an Igorish type gait, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Upon arriving at the gun shop, the pair are greeted not by Chen Lin, but by a grieving woman standing over a makeshift shrine. This woman turns out to be Chen Lin's wife, who tells him that her husband has been taken captive and is being held in the Good Time Club, Finkton's local establishment. We should also mention that Fink at this point, who was also the raffle announcer in last week's episode, is uh, also leading the industry in Colombia, uh, uh, providing a lot of the jobs for extortionate rates, paying them his own currency rather than the recognised currency in Colombia. Kind of an all-round douchey guy. Uh, obviously, uh, again, as we mentioned in the last episode, workers' rights really weren't a high priority here, particularly for the lower working classes. Uh, so all-round arsehole, this guy. Yeah, not cool. Not cool, Fink. Booker and Elizabeth fight their way through Fink's club, which is in fact a front for a prison and torture complex, eventually finding Chen Lin in his cell. However, unfortunately for our heroes, Mr. Lin is in no shape to help, given that he is now more of a mushy pile of flesh and bone than a friendly neighbourhood NPC. All hope is lost then. If only we had some way of going to an alternative reality where Chen Lin is alive and could help us. Booker, if we go into this terror... I don't think there's any turning back. You sure you want to go now? Elizabeth opens a tear to an alternative good time club, and they are now stood in an empty cell. Our heroes head back to the gun shop and are told by Chen Lin's wife in this reality that the guns have all been impounded and are being held in the Bullhouse impound deep under Finkton. Our heroes head down to the shanty town under Finkton and are greeted by sounds of despair from the downtrodden residents and Finkton labourers. Obviously having a sh** life, as Will has mentioned just there. It is a short walk from here to the Bullhouse Impound, where our heroes fight through a multitude of Comstock's men before finally finding the weapons deeper in the facility. However, there is another problem. There is no way that Booker and Elizabeth could lug these guns all the way to Daisy Fitzroy by themselves. If only there was a way that the guns could be back at the shop awaiting collection. I can open that tear whenever you're ready. Ready now? In our third new reality of the playthrough so far, the guns are no longer in the impounds, meaning they must be back at the gun shop. Again, that's such a weird conclusion that they came to, that they're not really like, gotta be back at the gun shop. It's like, mm, convenient, convenient. Uh, it is very convenient, that, yeah. <laughs> As Booker and Elizabeth head back through the shanty town towards the elevator back up to Finkton, they notice that Vox Populi soldiers are now helping them take out the Comstock guards, even referring to Booker as a hero. As the elevator draws closer, we see posters dotted around denoting Booker as a hero of the Vox Populi. And in this reality, it becomes clear that Booker is a rebel martyr. The pair use this to their advantage, easily fighting through the shantytown back to the elevator, and they board the elevator, leaving all of the madness behind them. But who knows what will be waiting for them when they get back to Finkton. And that, folks, is where we leave it for this week. Bioshock Part 3, coming in a week's time. Keep your eyes peeled. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, you can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on Twitter X at Mr. Bames. And I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash MrBames underscore TPM. And another humble request to our lovely listeners. Please do go follow us on those social medias. Please do comment, drop us a message, engage. We're a small podcast and we're trying to grow and any help you can give us is appreciated. And a very special thank you to all of the listeners who have liked and followed and subscribed thus far. We appreciate you. And we look forward to you tuning in again next week for another episode of Total Pod Mode. But for this week, goodbye. See you later, guys. Bye.